Okay, we are studying together uh, the subject of the, of the biblical covenants. There are five biblical covenants. There is the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And so what we've been doing to facilitate our study of the covenants is we've been going through a book by James Williamson called From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven. Garden of Eden, of course, is where history starts and the glory of heaven is where history ends. And uh, between those two bookends of history, uh, God has dealings with his people. And all of God's dealings with his people are all done vis-a-vis covenants. And so um, we have been looking more recently at the old covenant. And uh, we saw that the Old Covenant was expressed in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. We saw that it was a conditional covenant. God says, you know, if you will obey my voice and if you will keep my covenants, then I will put certain blessings upon you. We saw that Israel failed to keep her end of the covenant. And as a result, the Old Covenant was eventually done away with. However, um, the Old Covenant did contain... Uh, important elements within it uh, that uh, passed away and it contained other elements within it that remained. We saw that the old covenant was primarily a covenant of law. And so God says, if you will obey my voice and you will keep my covenant and the essence of the keeping of the covenant was the keeping of the law of God. We said that the law of God was divided into three sections. There was the ceremonial law, which dealt with the priesthood, the sacrifices, the feast and fast days, various cultural practices. Then there was the civil law, which dealt with Israel's life as a nation in terms of uh, her kingly rule, uh, her judges, uh, the criminal penalties and prohibitions that uh, were set forth for the civil life of Israel. And then, of course, there was the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And what we have seen is that the civil law passed away when the old covenant passed away. The ceremonial law passed away when the old covenant passed away. But the moral law did not pass away when the old covenant passed away. That is the Ten Commandments. And the reason why is because they didn't begin when the old covenant began. Laws that began when the old covenant began passed away when the old covenant passed away. But laws that preceded the institution of the old covenant also superseded the institution of the Old Covenant. And therefore, the Ten Commandments, which we find actually originating even before the fall, um, uh, continue on after the fall, uh, continue on clear up to the institution of the Old Covenant, and then, of course, continue on throughout uh, the uh, administration of the New Covenant. And indeed, these are permanent laws because they reflect the very nature and character of God himself. Um, to sin and to break uh, the Ten Commandments is to fall short of the glory of God because the Ten Commandments reflect that glory. So we have been saying more recently that uh, salvation isn't about deliverance from the Ten Commandments and having to keep them. It certainly is about deliverance from the penalties of the law, the condemning power of the law, but not from the ethical and moral responsibilities of the law. And so what we see is that Jesus not only did not cast out the Ten Commandments uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he actually reinforced them 
and our understanding of them. And we see them being repeated throughout the New Testament. Uh, we're told in Romans chapter 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. And so if we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourself, if by this shall all men know our, we are his disciples, we have love one to another, uh, the way we express that love is by keeping the law of God towards uh, our brethren. Now, having then um, surveyed very briefly um, nine chapters of information, um, today we want to focus on the information that's on page 136 in our book. And um, what this talks about is the second thing that continued on from the Old Covenant. We said the Ten Commandments continued on from the Old Covenant. The second thing that continued on from the Old Covenant is the promises of God. And so not only does the moral law of God remain in effect, including all the Ten Commandments, but also the promises of God to Israel in the Old Covenant are now applied to the church because we are the new Israel. Okay, Israel never ceased to exist. Israel was simply pruned of its unbelieving members. It was given a new covenant to replace the old covenant and the Gentiles were grafted into Israel. And so now we read, for example, in Galatians 3.29, and if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the promises that were made in the Abrahamic covenant are promises to us. And in the same way, the promises that were made under the old covenant are also promises to us. And so <clears throat> it, it, it was the Lord's purpose to make old covenant Israel into a certain body of people with certain characteristics and of course, we know that they failed to uphold their end of the bargain, but God did not abandon his purpose to have a special people for himself upon whom he would pour out his blessings. And so what we see in our memory verse uh, from last week is that the people of God in the new covenant uh, are declared to be and to possess all the things that the people of God under the old covenant were and uh, were declared to possess. Now, uh, I wrote up here on the chalkboard a, a, um, two, two verses. The first verse is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And we know from that passage what the terms of the old covenant were. And it's one of the verses that we memorized together. I'll just read it to you. It says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And so Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 set forth the terms of the old covenant. And so he says, here's the condition. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be, and he promised them, you recall, three blessings. He promised that 
uh, Israel would be a peculiar treasure. That is, they would be a special people of God, a people that were uh, unique and special among all the nations. They would be peculiarly, peculiarly or uniquely God's own nation. Okay, And then it says that they would be a kingdom of priests. That is, that the nation of Israel would mediate the word of God to the rest of the world. And that they would have a special relationship with God in terms of access and in terms of authorization to represent God to uh, the nations around them. And then they would be a holy nation. That is, they would be morally distinct from the nations around them. The nations around them, of course, were going to be defiled in all the pagan immorality and wickedness. But Israel was going to be set apart from that. And they were going to be a people who lived by um, the moral law of God and that were seen by God as being a people who were marked as those who lived um, in, in a righteous fashion. Now, of course, we know that Israel failed to do this part, didn't they? They failed to obey his voice and they failed to keep his covenant. And so we read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, that because of the weakness and the unprofitableness of the parties to that covenant, that that covenant was done away with and replaced with a new covenant. So we come to our memory verse today to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And what do we find being predicated of new covenant believers? Well, we see that they are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. We see that they are a holy nation. And we see that they are a peculiar treasure or a peculiar people. And of course, they are, in the original language, an elect race. That is, a specially chosen body of people, God's elect. Okay, so uh, what we see is that the promises that were made to Israel are what? They're now applied to the church. Okay, and what God determined that he would pour out upon Israel, he has in fact poured out upon the church. And so the point that the author of our book was making is he said here, the people of God in the new covenant are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Does that sound familiar? These are the very words of the old covenant taken up and applied to believers in the new covenant. Even though Israel forsook the blessings of this covenant, the Lord preserved those blessings for a new people of God, a people he would save by his son. So, all the promises then that were given to old covenant Israel regarding things like victory over enemies, blessings, protection, deliverance, that were given to Israel belong to us. And so if it was for Israel, well, it's now for the church.
And what this does then is it makes the Old Testament and the study of the Old Testament not a study in uh, <clears throat> the irrelevance of antiquity, but rather it makes it a fascinating study in the blessings that God has designed for his people, people who are in covenant with him. And of course, we are in covenant with him through and vis-a-vis the new covenant. And therefore, those blessings are designed for us and are poured out upon us. Now, what I want to do is show you just a few passages and a few ways in which this happens. You will recognize when you read the New Testament that it is intimately interwoven with Old Testament truth and promises and uh, principles and examples. And uh, the reason for that is manifold, but one of the reasons is that when the new covenant was instituted, not everything in the old covenant was thrown away. In fact, the new covenant is based on uh, the old covenant in many respects, um, although it, of course is primarily based on the Abrahamic covenant. But we said, you recall that around the Abrahamic covenant, the scaffolding of the old covenant was built until the new covenant would come, that scaffolding was removed, and uh, yet uh, not every aspect of it was done away with. We still have, for example, the Ten Commandments, and we still have the promises. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, by the time Deuteronomy was written, uh, chapter 25... The Old Covenant was clearly in place, had been in place for a long time. And in Deuteronomy 25 and in verse 4, it says, for example, Deuteronomy 25, 4, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Now, you might just read over that and think nothing of it. But turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about the support of ministers, of pastors, of churches. And he says... <clears throat> Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, Or I only in Barnabas have not we power to forbear working? Who goes to warfare at any time as it own charges? Who plants a vineyard and eats not the fruit thereof? Or who feeds a flock and eateth not the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man? Now here it is. Or saith not the law, the old covenant, the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here's our verse in Deuteronomy 25, 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And now he's going to show us how we apply the Old Testament under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. He says, does God take care for oxen? Am I saying this because I have a great concern about how you're treating your oxen? And the answer is no. He says, here's the application. Verse 10, or saith he it altogether for our sakes, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, 
that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of the hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a great is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things. And so <clears throat> what he's saying is just like when the oxen works, he is supposed to eat of the fruit of his work. That is, as he's treading out the corn, he should be able to lean down and take a bite of the corn. He's producing, you know, 500 times as much as he's consuming, and he should be able to partake of that which he produces. And in the same way, you know, ministers of the gospel <clears throat> produce spiritual blessings for the people as they shepherd them and teach them. And so they should be able to eat of the fruit of their labor, that is, of the material possessions of those to whom they minister. And thus we have the principle of tithing in the local church for the support of her ministers. And uh, here Paul takes um, an Old Testament principle and he applies it in a new covenant fashion, thus showing how we are to use the Old Testament. We're not to implicitly obey it in its letter, but we are to say to ourselves, what are the principles here in these passages? And how can we then apply these principles under the rubric of the new covenant? <clears throat> and here's an example of how the old covenant would be applied under the new covenant. And even though um, um, many of the civil and ceremonial laws uh, that, that they passed away, Nevertheless, they too contain principles and illustrations of new covenant truth that we need to draw out of them. Um, so, for example, in Hebrews chapter 9, turn there, please. Book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews chapter 9 you'll notice he goes back to the first covenant, the old covenant. And in verses 1 to 14, he draws out the new covenant application of those old covenant, in this case, ceremonial practices. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, then verily the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary, where there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, and the showbread, uh, <clears throat> which is called the sanctuary, and the second veil, the tabernacle, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, over at the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak in greater detail." Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. Speaking of the day of atonement. Now, here's the application, verse 8 through 14. The Holy Ghost, thereby signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or open while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was notice a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience 
which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse watchings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them, notice, until the time of reformation, until the time that Jesus came. Verse 11, but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, look, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, these are all um, symbols. These are all uh, figures of, uh, of the new covenant realities. And then he sets forth the new covenant realities, which they represent. So now when we go back and study the old covenant ceremonial law, or we go back and study the old covenant civil law, even though these things have passed away in terms of their direct application, they still contain much by way of instruction for us and illumination to us regarding uh, new covenant principles. And so if we read about how we're supposed to treat our animals under the old covenant, well, that tells us something about how we're supposed to treat our pastors under the new covenant. And if we read about this tabernacle and all the animal sacrifices and all the work of the priest and the makeup and function of the old covenant temple, well, that tells us something about Christ and his redemptive work. And so this is the use we make of the old covenant civil law and ceremonial law that has passed away. We look for the principles that it contains that could be applied to the new covenant and the fulfillment and completion that it sets forth. Now, what then about the promises? Well, the answer is, is that in relationship to the promises, they are taken over one for one. They're taken over directly. Okay. So for example, let's look at Psalm 54 and verse four. Okay, Psalm 54 and verse 4. <clears throat> Psalm 54, 4 says, Behold, God is mine helper. Now just keep that in your little noggin. God is my helper. Okay? And now turn to Psalm 118, same book, Psalm 118. And notice verse 6. Psalm 118 and verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Now, these are both clearly Old Covenant promises. Do they apply to us? Can we take these things for ourselves? Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Okay. Hebrews chapter 13, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. 
In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, Hebrews 13, 5, Let your manner of life be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, here's Psalm 54, 4, The Lord is my helper. And then here's Psalm 118 and verse 6. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And so he took two promises directly from the old covenant and he applied them directly one for one to believers under the new covenant. There's no, this is a picture of that. There's no, here's a principle that you can apply in a different way. It's just, here's what God promises these people, and here's what God promises you. Now, sometimes the promises are couched in Old Covenant terminology. We need to understand the New Covenant ramifications of those. For example, God promises to Israel the land, right? And he describes that land. And he describes it with certain geographical boundaries. And it is, of course, the modern day land roughly of Israel. But we know that even Abraham understood that wasn't really the land. The land really is the new heavens and the new earth. And Hebrews chapter 11 says very clearly that Moses struck that, that Abraham understood that he was a pilgrim and a stranger in, in that geographical, physical land all the days of his life. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And uh, furthermore, that land never was the everlasting inheritance, the everlasting uh, land that was promised to uh, Israel. And so when we come to those kind of promises, we have to understand them in a New Testament sense or a new covenant sense. So all the promises, for example, to Israel about the land are, are promises to the church about the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why you see statements in there about the lion lying down with the lamb and the child putting his hand on the hole of the adder and not being bitten. Um, and, and the ox and the ass will, I mean, the uh, ox and the, and the uh, lion will dwell together and they'll both eat grass. Um, you know, and there's going to be this wonderful material prosperity. But when is all that going to take place? It's going to take place in the new heavens and the new earth. So um, there is a, a, a direct application uh, covenantally understood of the promises from the old covenant uh, to the new covenant. Now, let's in our remaining time just spend a few minutes looking at some of these promises Turn to Isaiah chapter 41, and I just, I just grabbed a few off the top of my head here. Um, but as you read through the Old Testament, uh, and you see promises made to Israel, just underline those. Those are for you, okay? So, for example, Isaiah 41 and verse 8. Notice who's being addressed in Isaiah 41 and verse 8. It says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. 
Now, a dispensationist will tell you, oh, that's not for you. That's for the Jews. Look at who's being addressed. And I respond, I am a Jew. I am a son of Israel. Okay? Because the Bible says in the New Testament in many places that if we are Christ, then are we Abraham's seed? Because Abraham is a Jew, right? He was the beginning of the Jews. And he begot Jesus through a whole genealogy, right? And then Jesus begot us vis-a-vis the new birth. We're born of Christ. And if we're born of Christ, then we are the children of Abraham because we share the faith of Abraham, as it says in Galatians chapter 3 in the earlier verses. And so there is a... When you, when you look at what 1 Peter 2.9 says about us, it applies to us the very same things that were applied to Israel. And so uh, the New Testament is just saturated in, in language that declares that the church is Israel, continued, pruned of our unbelieving members, given a new covenant, and having the Gentiles grafted in. And when we're grafted in, we're grafted into the stock and the covenant of Abraham. So, when I read in verse 8, But thou, Israel, are my servant, that's me, Jacob, whom I have chosen. You are what? A chosen generation, right? It says, uh, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. So, What I'm about to read to you is for me. It's for you. It's for us. He says, verse 9, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. And of course, God's church is made up of chosen people, those who are God's elect. Here's the promise. Verse 10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with thee shall perish, like Osama bin Laden. And thou shalt seek them and shall not find them, even them that contend with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and you men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now people, that's for you. And you're going to run across a jillion of these, where God addresses Israel and declares wonderful promises to them. And you just take those promises for you one for one. Unless there's, it's couched in old covenant terminology. Um, and then you just apply new covenant terminology to it. Okay. Uh, here he's talking to Israel about the nations that were attacking her. We can certainly apply this to the spiritual attacks we receive from the world and the flesh and the devil. Who are our enemies. When you read the imprecatory psalms, the psalms that call down God's curses on our enemies, well, those are curses to be applied to our enemies. 
And we do have, not so much in America, though it's, it's increasing, physical enemies, uh, overt persecutors, but our brethren in other countries certainly do, especially in Islamic countries and, and increasingly in India from, from the Buddhists, the militant, uh, uh, pardon me, not the militant Hindus. And uh, so uh, all these promises regarding victories over enemies and blessings and protection and deliverance that were given to Israel belong to us. As I said, it's for, if it's for Israel, it's for you. And this makes the Old Testament a very rich resource for study, for application, and for comfort. And so um, read just especially those last uh, 20 chapters, 26 chapters or so of Isaiah from chapter 40 on to chapter 66, just loaded with promises uh, for um, new covenant believers who are uh, the children of Israel. Um, and of course, there's lots of them in the other prophets and Psalms, uh, Proverbs as well. Okay. All right. Any questions? That's correct. Not replacement, but fulfillment. That's right. Exactly. Because the church didn't replace Israel. It just was the continuation of Israel. Well, Arminianism is simply humanism that's been baptized. And the reason why Arminian theology is so popular is because it panders to the flesh and the desire for personal sovereignty, which is an expression of rebellion against God. And a lot of people who hold to Arminian theology um, are simply unsaved people. And that's how it got so far along. It is. But of course, we're not addressing Arminian theology here so much as we are dispensational theology, um, which fails to understand the covenantal structure of the Bible, covenantal trans, uh, transitions, and covenantal applications to us. You know, Arminianism and Calvinism basically revolves around the subject of soteriology, which uh, is oblique to what we're studying right now. Um, but. Um, how it got so far is um, simply that it's um, something that uh, Satan wants to promote because it preserves human pride and human self-will and human self-determination, all of which is contrary to the sovereignty and um, authority of God. All right, while well, time is gone, let us pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful covenants that you've established and the blessings that you have provided in them. And thank you, Father, that the old covenant has much by way of a new covenant application. Even the civil law and the ceremonial law has application. But, oh, Lord, the promises, they're direct. They're for us. And, Lord, we thank you for that, that we can take all you have said to Israel and we can take it for ourselves. Thank you, Father, that you have made us a chosen generation. Thank you that you have made us a royal priesthood. Thank you, Father, that you have, have made us a, a peculiar people of your own possession. And, Father, a people who um, are designed to show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And Father, we do praise you today. 
for bringing us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your own dear Son. Father, may we walk in the light as he is in the light. May we enjoy the light of your word and the blessings that it conveys in Jesus' name.